you know, we'd have noticed over six million bodies. You, you wouldn't not notice that. You would have noticed there'd be bodies everywhere. So the thing is, our, our fear is Stone Age. Our understanding of maths is not in the same place. And people are notoriously bad at um, estimating risk and numbers. But that has um, coincided with this public health messaging. Hi everyone, just a few words before we get started. First of all, our sponsor, ExpressVPN, the number one most trusted VPN on the internet. And you can currently get 35% of 12 months of ExpressVPN if you follow the link in the description below. Also, you'll find a link there for my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, which is available to order on Amazon and bookshop.org. Finally, don't forget to like, share and subscribe to this podcast. Your help is how we grow. So here's the interview. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing Laura Dodsworth, the author of the fantastic book A State of Fear. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. No problem. So uh, I've been following you on, on Twitter and watching, uh, watching your work. I'd, I'd really never come across anything you'd done before before COVID, um, but that seems to have been the case with, with a lot of um, sort of sensible seeming people at the moment um, i'm discovering a lot of people that i i would never have considered to be uh rational thinking or just people who's writing i would have never discovered so at least that's been fun um so why did you choose to write a state of fear mm. well it's not so you it's not something i'd ever planned on i suppose if you're interested in public health or politics you wouldn't have come across me before because i've not i've not delved into these areas before um I think the reason the reasons that I chose to write this book are first of all I felt a lot of fear myself last spring, some fear of the virus but also some fear of the government's approach to it, to the really huge interventions. Lockdown was a new um, a new intervention. It had huge personal consequences. Um, I'm very alert to language and. I think quite early on I was tuning into language that was used and the public health messaging and the advertising and I really perceived people's fear as well just from mundane experiences of walking my dog and seeing people jump to the other side of the, the path and, and bury their face in the hedge to avoid breathing my exhalations and a certain amount of fear in an epidemic is natural and to be expected but I became interested in how frightened people were and where this was coming from. And there's a very extraordinary document which um, dates to the 22nd of March in the UK. It's a set of minutes, a clean set of minutes, from a meeting of the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Behaviour, SPI-B, who report into other government advisory panels, SAGE and COBRA, and into the Cabinet Office, and they answer questions. So the the question in this case would have been, how do we get people to follow lockdown rules? And the document, which is the, the, the minutes from the meeting, is a set of suggestions for how to make people follow this unprecedented uh, tool of lockdown. And one thing they said was that our sense of personal threat needed to be elevated because a substantial number of people were complacent because they were reassured by the low risk of death in their age group. You see, we did know from quite early that COVID is very age stratified and 
also patterned according to identifiable clinical conditions. And so some people didn't think that they were a great risk of dying, which was true. So the recommendation of behavioural psychologists was basically to frighten people. Um, this, the UK isn't the only country this happened in. Not hugely reported on over here, but very significantly, it's something called the Panic Papers in Germany, um, also revealing planning between politicians and psychologists and scientists to create fear in order to encourage compliance with regulations. So it wasn't only happening in the UK, but my book focuses on the UK because I wanted to write it and my publisher wanted to get it out quite quickly while we're in this, in this time, while we're still in this period of history. I've only looked at the UK's response. And so what I did was interview a multitude of people from government advisors, scientists, psychologists, some of the behavioural scientists that actually um, advise on SPI-B, lawyers, journalists, sociologists, a whole range of people to try and piece together how people were frightened into following the rules. My book isn't really about the why, it's not about, it's not so much about why fear would be used. I think some people think, you know, maybe it's going to be the, the tinfoil hat answer to all their questions and it's really not, it's more about the how. Um, I think a lot of people might think the story of last year, of the last, well, the last 16 months now, was a story of an epidemic and a virus. But for me, the story was fear. That's, that's just what I tuned into and was interested in. And I think it's really important because for a government and the media to leverage fear in order to create compliance in the population, well, it's not new. This has happened before. It's not, it's not a brand new thing. But if we're not aware of it and we're not, we're not cognizant of the, the tools that are used, we leave ourselves open to the same methods being used again in the future. That's a bit of a rambly answer, but that's why I wrote the book. No, no, that's, 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 that's a beautiful answer, to be honest. Um, one of the things that, that kind of struck me is that fear seems to be the, the governing and or the, the dominating emotion in our politics in in the way we govern in in basically how we sort of deal with all, almost everything in our daily lives is like are you going to go to the pub at the weekend it's like oh oh should i is that going to be safe and it, in 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 every sense of like what you're doing it's like oh do i need to remember to take my mask to the shop because i have to be scared that i might infect someone or someone might infect me and but it kind of strikes me that, that the fear has been there for a while it's not like COVID isn't isn't like as you mentioned very astutely that it's not something new. Like when do you think that became the the, the emotion of choice or the weapon of choice that, that governments or or even just politicians generally used to facilitate governance and, and you know running the country? Well, in one sense my book takes quite a narrow focus because I haven't conducted a historical analysis of the government's use of behavioural psychology and it's not a historical analysis of the use of fear by governments because I'm focusing very much on the UK, the behavioural psychology approach to COVID and the book takes a period of one year. I think a good author to look at for answering those questions would be the sociologist Frank Faraday who's written several books about fear. I think you are right. 
you know, the politics of fear is quite a current phrase now. So emotion drives us. Emotion is, is the engine and fear is the steam in the engine. It's the most powerful emotion. And if you are frightened, it affects how you think rationally. If how you think rationally is affected, you'll be more reliant on government messaging. So you will follow it more closely. But if that government messaging continues to reinforce what you should be frightened of, it continues to destabilise you psychologically, making you more frightened, making you more reliant on the government messaging. So we end up in a kind of a doom loop. The other thing to add in there is the government appears to have been relying upon polls. Um, I know that SPY-B look at polls, YouGov, for instance, among others. And if people have been, if their fear has been elevated, if their alarm levels have been elevated beyond the actual risk for their age or their clinical condition, then they will answer polls more negatively and say, yes, we're still frightened. No, we're not confident, confident that the government has a handle on it. No, we don't want to open up yet. Yes, we'd like restrictions to continue. Don't end furlough, whatever the question is. And then that feeds into government decision-making. I think that in some ways public health policy has been a sick dog chasing its own tail. Um, and I don't see this changing. There's already quite a segue between COVID and climate. One of my uh, penny drop moments was when I interviewed Spy B advisors. One of them talked about climate when I asked him if they'd been tasked with climbing down from a fear, how to get the country back to normal, real normal, old normal, um, and how to recover from this state of fear. And he seemed really surprised to be asked. And he said, well, we're not really going to go back to normal because climate's coming next. And I read a paper which came out of the University of Bath talking about this narrow window of opportunity to change habits while habits are malleable, while we have changed our lives um, because of COVID. So I suspect you'll see more fear messaging around other issues um, while we're in this window, potentially, to leverage other political agendas. I'm not saying that based on any evidence. It's just a theory. I'm just speculating. I might be wrong. But I've seen one television advert um, for Scotland already about net zero. And it's quite it's got kind of a horror film style. It shows disastrous scenes in, in nature, you know, terrible storms, and it's pushing the idea of going towards net zero. So it's, it's using fear in order to get people to buy in to um, political policies, which won't necessarily be comfortable or easy for people. The kind of behaviour changes that will be required will probably create wider class distinctions and, you know, involve expense and be difficult and they're not really things people want to do so this particular ad I've seen is using fear in order I'd say to soften people up for um, bills and policies to follow so I think we have to be really aware of how fear is used um, I am not the first person to put this forward in fact the behavioural psychologists themselves have talked about the need to consult with the public on the tools they used because behavioural psychology subliminally manipulates you. It seeks to nudge your behaviour in ways in which you're not really aware. So you still have a choice. You could still say, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to, to follow this course of action you recommend for me. It's not against the law. It's not a mandate. It's not a law. You're being nudged. But the tools are they're a bit sneaky. They're a bit manipulative. They're below the level of consciousness. So the behavioural psychologists themselves have recommended in previous documents that the public should be consulted. 
And it never happened. And I think that's probably because the policies that were being pursued and the tactics were, they seemed a lot more innocuous, like, say, um, cutting down smoking or reducing knife crime or vandalism in the inner cities. But the weaponization of fear is a much more serious tactic which has created a lot of collateral damage for the country and is now making recovery harder. So I hope that my book is the beginning of a conversation about the behavioural psychology approach. Like there's so there's so many things that, that kind of like, I don't have really specific data for it, but it just kind of, I've like seen some things, as you, as you mentioned with the, with the climate thing, like for example, just to speak to that, um, first of all, I've had a lot of people on this podcast talking about climate change, so I am not saying that we don't need to do something about it. That is an insane suggestion. And making our energy sources cleaner is just seems like a win-win regardless of the <laughs> of the, the climate implications. But I've seen there was undercover footage from Jeff Zucker, I think it was at CNN, talking about how now the COVID agenda is done, next is coming the climate agenda. And I've seen a lot of people talk about climate lockdowns and... And so I, d I don't think your 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 thoughts there are misplaced. But the thing that, that I find um, really interesting is that uh, there was studies done, it must have been like 10 years ago, about how seeing messages that say, like, wash your hands will will actually, if you if people start to see them enough, will start to push a country further to the right. Um, and it's like mirrored in the way that countries with they've, they've drawn correlation between like countries with more infectious diseases like um, along the equator tend to have like more right wing views the more infectious diseases and stuff that there is in the country just like minusculely but it's like an interesting correlation like yeah although not necessarily right wing it's authoritarian I know the paper you mean and it's actually a link with authoritarian styles of government as opposed to being right wing. Okay, well, perhaps the, the thing I read was was cla was um, classifying it or, or, or using poor terminology. But even just that thought is interesting to me. It's like, what is the fear of, and the fear that we see all around us in the wash your hands, wear a mask, you can kill someone um, sort of messaging that goes around. It, it, it seems to me that we're, we're probably doing things to our collective psychology that we can't even understand right now and there seems to be very little like people addressing that i know um so the thing that's different about this is the public health messaging hasn't just told you that that you are at risk it's told you you are the risk and what that does is create ill will and blame between people and it creates a different type of fear it also allows it also allows a deflection away from politicians and policies towards people. Oh, the restrictions haven't been lifted. It's because not enough of you got vaccinated or because you hugged people or because you, there were too many of you in the street on that protest. It's a deflection. Um, I mean, there was one ad that said, don't let a coffee cost lives. So this is an ad that is produced by the government, funded by us, the taxpayers, telling us that if you have a coffee, you might kill people. Now, it was never illegal for two friends to meet up and get a takeaway coffee and go for a walk. And 
for some people that's been a lifeline. I know that in you know those bleak long winter lockdown months for me to meet a friend and go for a walk around the local park with a coffee was really really helpful. So to see an ad telling you that you might kill somebody is not only wildly alarmist but it's trying to deter you from something which is legal and norm and also normal social human behaviour and it also then shifts the blame. If you've done this thing, not even the thing that's against the law, but a completely normal human activity that's not against the law, you might kill people. And so there's been a lot of advertising which has created alarm, shifted blame um, onto people. And we, you know, there is, there are quite a lot of figures now, I won't have any to top, off the top of my head, I'm afraid, showing um, that many of the deaths have occurred in care homes and hospitals, and yet, you know, we haven't seen public health messaging about that. And it would be horrific if we were to blame nurses or porters or doctors for people dying whilst being cared for um, in hospital or care homes. And there are other government policies that you could look at. So, for instance, not sufficient PPE at the beginning. Some people think we should have locked down sooner. I don't, but some people do. But there are policies that would make a great deal more difference than people going for a coffee. There was another ad that showed teenage lads in the park um, and the strapline was COVID kills. Well, COVID hasn't really killed teenage lads, especially when they've met in the park. Um, it's, not, it's not a disease that poses any serious threat to young people. Um, though there are a few who've died, but the numbers are tiny. So again, that's trying to create fear in a cohort of people that aren't really at risk. And it also, again, points the finger. It's very easy for older people to look at younger people and say, oh, that they're out in the park or um, they're risking our lives, they're endangering us. It just creates blame between people, which I don't think is going to pan out very well in society. That's not really, I don't think that's the direction we want to be going down, where groups of people are blaming each other for a virus, which is also, you know, uh, influenced by other things, I guess what viruses do, and, you know, seasonality and, uh, you know, other bigger government policies. Understanding the risk isn't the same as saying it's not re real. Um, and there's been a lot of advertising that puts the onus on the person who bent the rules. Now, most people probably bent the rules a little bit at one point or another when it suited them. Um, but also most people will adopt cautious behavior in times which are dangerous. And I think people can be trusted to do the right things for themselves, their families and society. And a lot of the approach, you know, the strict laws, the very punitive fines, the public health messaging have all belied a lack of trust in people. Yeah. Yeah. We've been somewhat babied in a way, haven't we? Mm. It's like treating, treating us like children is the, is the, is the biggest issue I feel. It's, uh, yeah, the, the advertising as well is, is, is really, it really disturbs me in a way sometimes. Like, I, I saw some adverts from the Scottish NHS and uh, just pop up in my Twitter feed. And, and I, had to, I had to prove to people that they were not fake because they did not believe what the advert was saying, that it was from the Scottish NHS. It was, there was two ads. There was one 
and it was this young young girl or like maybe 20 25 and the the caption like she was sitting in a park and the caption read i'm still meeting people outside even though i'm double jabbed and 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 people are just like hang on like why are they trying i showed it to a couple of them like why are they trying to drum up this fear and i and i know you don't you haven't like speculated too much on this, but it, do you, is your sense just that it makes easy life easier for them if people are scared for the, for the government? Mm, I think this is quite complicated. I don't have any hard answers. I'm not sitting in the war room meetings. I can't look into the hearts of ministers, so I don't know. I don't wish to speculate about things I don't know about. Um, the book is not conspiracy theory territory, so I'm really not sure, but it's... We know from those spiby minutes that fear was suggested in order to encourage a level of docility, compliance, adherence with rules. So that's one very obvious and logical motivation. Um, the reason, I mean, you, you just talked about people not going out despite being double jabbed. I think we're now really seeing the impact of the weaponization of fear. And it's only just beginning. I think it's going to get worse. You know, there were ONS figures that showed that half of clinically vulnerable people who can stop shielding because they've been offered their vaccination have not stopped shielding. Half of the clinically vulnerable people are still sheltering at home. And that's unnecessary. And, you know, that's fine if that's their choice. But I think that betrays a level of unnecessary fear. Also, there have been some um, quite worrying stats about one and a half million children potentially needing mental health treatment in the wake of lockdowns. Um, the Telegraph reported just the other day that children as young as five are having panic attacks about the idea of meeting their friends. Um, and yet waiting lists on the NHS have never, probably never been so bad, a waiting list for psychological help for as long as four years. Um, psychiatrists have now identified COVID anxiety syndrome, which is linked to the fear of the virus. So those are some very obvious collateral damages, but also, um, you know, one in three adults increased their consumption of alcohol during the first, first lockdown. I know I did. <laughs> and um, there's a 20% increase in opiate addictions. So there's, there's lots of indications that people have been under enormous stress and fear. And it's not necessarily easy to prove causation rather than correlation or also to extricate what's caused by unnecessarily alarming public health messaging or the 24-7 media doom-mongering or just the natural human fear of an epidemic or the impact of lockdowns you know there are quite a lot of factors here but I think it's going to be really important to look at that in some detail because I don't think we should ever do this to people again um, the idea that children as young as five are having panic attacks about meeting their friends is horrific. Yeah, that's that's horrifying. Um, I, I, like it's the this. I think part of the concern because there isn't. I the problem is that it affects everybody because there's either the people who are scared of the virus and believe that the government actions are necessary, proportionate, and uh, you know for for better or for worse, they think that that's the right thing to do. And um, then th they're scared of, of COVID and, you know, all the, the consequences of, you know, long COVID or the Delta variant or some other variant we haven't heard of yet. And then on the other side, there's the people who are scared like yourself and, and like me as well about the, the, the scale of the government response and the public's acquiescence to the removal of civil rights and civil liberties and the prospect that we, that 
you know, come October or November, December, that Boris Johnson might just say, hey, well, you know, we're going to lock down again. Um, and and that, 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 that's causing, for me, I think, the same amount of stress and anxiety as, as COVID itself. So it's, it's not just like a one-sided thing. I feel that there's, uh, unless you find some incredibly zen way to be almost oblivious to the entirety of life at the moment, um, and I, I know a couple of people like that, they're, they're incredibly good at that. But I'd say most of us are struggling through fear of one thing or, or another. And, and it feels really unhealthy. Yes, exactly. Mm. I, 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 put, I put this in my book. I think one way or another, a certain amount of fear was unleashed in the air and you caught it. What you were frightened of might vary, but you caught it. I saw um, a, a publican, he's called Adam Brooks, tweet yesterday, I'm more frightened of the government than I am of COVID. And my goodness, what a terrible situation we're in that, that some of us are now fr more frightened about what the government will do next, whether they're going to let us work and leave our homes, have relationships, etc., than we are of a virus. You know, it's that's a really, really sad situation to be in. And I think that long term trust in the government brand and the NHS and public health messaging is going to suffer from this. Um, also, potentially trust in. Um, medical treatments. So there's a lot of coercion happening at the moment around the vaccine, which sort of plays into what I've been talking about. Now, it's, there is a chapter in the book about the vaccine, not about the science of it or, or anything, but about the, uh, the language of coercion and manipulation that I've noted in relation to encouraging vaccine uptake. But for instance, you know, there've been a couple of TV polls playing on this. GMB um, put one out on social media that said something like, would you uninvite somebody from a dinner party if they weren't vaccinated? I think the Jeremy Vine programme had one that said, do you blame the unvaccinated for the delays to unlocking? Now, by any, by any yardstick, um, if you look at promises that were made earlier in the year, that we would cry freedom by Easter from at Hancock, or Grant Schnapp said he would join Julia Hartleyborough on the barricades if we if we didn't unlock, and it was based on um, certain targets. So, um, you know, at one point it was the over fifties and the clinically vulnerable being vaccinated. Well, we've reached all of those, and also where we are in terms of um, hospitalizations and deaths is better than the best case. Uh, modelling that was put out before but even though we've hit those targets and we're in a good situation that's still not enough we're still not unlocking and this is blame game turning people onto each other do you blame others who've chosen not to be vaccinated or can't be vaccinated for the fact we haven't released you yet um, and that kind of I think that kind of language is worrying because what it does is other and dehumanise a whole section of people in society who might not want to have the vaccine, they want to wait, so they'd be called hesitant. Um, and we've seen different ways that's tackled. So first of all, there's convenience, you make it convenient to get the vaccine, and there's confidence and complacency. And we've seen them go through that, and now we're entering into another stage where it's about blaming people that don't have it. Um, there was a term that was being used which kind of came up all at once and everyone was using it and then it just stopped all at once which was refuse nick i think people realized it was just hugely inappropriate um and now it's vaccine refuser or anti-vax or vaccine hesitant vaccine hesitant is interesting because it implies there's just a little hump you've got to go over it implies that the inevitable end result is the same you're just hesitating but you know we'll, we'll get you there in the end dear um 
so that's that's something that I see happening at the moment. There was a behavioural psychologist on the news in Canada who talked about this quite openly actually. They said we can't unlock yet because if we do, what's the incentive for people to get the vaccination? CNN said something very similar. Oh really? In the in the US? Yeah, there was, I can't remember who it was, but I'm pretty sure they were on with um, Chris Cuomo and they said, you know, we're losing our opportunity to link vaccination to reopening. Right. Yeah, there we go. Yes, it's about creating pressure for people to follow the desired public health policy. But it's it's creating pressure in a way which can dehumanise people, create alienation and division in society. Yeah, it's concern. Why do you think that the fear? Actually, before I move on to that next question, just to say, um, anyone who feels like they're they're they're, you know, being selfish by not taking the vaccine yet, especially if you have had COVID, um, most most like well-respected scientists that I have spoken to or doctors about this, like say that the, the natural immunity will probably end up being more long-lasting and more comprehensive than the vaccine. So if if you're concerned maybe get the antibody test or something just like don't don't like feel like you have to do it just to be safe if you don't want to i i, I just I, I get very uncomfortable about the the kind of coercion of, of anything um so well i don't want to comment on the efficacy of the vaccine that's completely out of my my armchair expert status but and that's from you not me but i do want i do want to i do want to say something about the coercion um, one of the, the bedrocks, ethical bedrocks of modern medicine is informed consent. So nobody should feel pressured to have any medical intervention. So that, that is important. Um, the documentation on informed consent for vaccines doesn't, it's not, it's not really super clear, but there is some documentation in the US that I was looking at that says, for instance, incentives shouldn't apply a level of coercion. And there are lots of incentives in the US. So for instance, Budweiser said they'll provide a free beer for everybody if 70% of the population is vaccinated by July 4th. Um, you can get Krispy Kreme donuts every day for a year what? if you're vaccinated. I mean, that's really, really a remarkably incongruent thing because apart from the fact that eating a donut every day is probably not the healthiest thing to do. We know that being overweight and obese is a comorbidity with COVID. Anyway, um, but they've also had, they've also run much bigger um, incentives like um, raffles for money for airline tickets and also for college scholarships. That's one that really worries me because somebody who's say 17, 18, I don't know what age they're applying for college in the US, I think 17, um, is at very little risk from COVID and would probably benefit from, you know, weighing up the harms and the benefits of the vaccine, potentially in line with the paediatrician or pharmacist or doctor. But a college ed education in the US is very expensive. So that's a really significant incentive. And I think that plays with informed consent. And we're also seeing um, links with, say, myocarditis in young men. And how will people feel ultimately in the future if they were incentivised to have the medical treatment, which was then linked with an increased risk in their age category? I think we have to be really careful about these incentives. Um, and actually, I've seen the first one here in the UK. I think it's Charlton Football Club um, is giving 
free football tickets to the first thousand people that are vaccinated in their stadium because stadiums are opening up for vaccinations and we haven't done anything like that in the UK before so it's like everything everything's being thrown at increasing vaccine uptake and some people will rush towards that and it's just going to help push them over you know if they were kind of yeah I'll get around to it but it kind of gives them that that nudge literally that nudge to have it um, but for other people is that going to affect their informed consent because we shouldn't really be paying people to have a medical intervention it should be based on the fact that it's effective and safe and the right thing for them to do so I'm uncomfortable with the use of incentives um, that could also be about who I am I, I'm not I wouldn't be enticed by a football ticket I'm just not into football <laughs> and I wouldn't be enticed by free donuts every day but I would be enticed by hard scientific data mm. I mean you, you didn't mention actually two of the what I find to be the most disturbing incentives that were offered in America uh, one was the, the you got entered for there was five tickets I think it was in Michigan there was five tickets offered for one million dollars each so there was going to be a raffle of all the vaccinated and there was five five opportunities if you were one of them to win a million dollars and then even more disturbing was the fact that I believe it's Washington State are giving out free joints like weed for getting a vaccine so in one part of the country. They're giving of giving away a drug that, yeah, the, the the British government said nothing about this. They consider it to be a class B drug with no medical purposes whatsoever. So we are giving out what they consider to be a dangerous, addictive substance in one state, while in another state, the now vice president of the United States has locked people up for possession of said drug that they're giving away to get people to take the vaccine. It's like the cognitive dissonance there for me is mind blowing. Yeah. Well, on drugs, something that I found disturbing as a mother of teenage boys was an educationist in the UK. I think he's um, in one of the National Head Teacher Associations. Um, it's not the National Head Teacher Association, though. It's a different one. Um, and it was reported in the Telegraph that he said that one way they could encourage high school students to have the vaccination is through leveraging peer pressure. Now, I, I don't even know where to go with this because, you know, one week we have an assembly saying don't give in to peer pressure to take drugs. And then we have somebody who'd be responsible for these policies in schools saying use peer pressure to get kids to have a vaccination. It's a really mixed message approach. And I think that using peer pressure will definitely damage trust long term for students and parents. And it's not, not how we want to encourage our children and our teenagers to be making decisions. This is the last thing you want. I want to encourage my sons not to give in to peer pressure. And if they feel under pressure among their peers, you do not make the decision there. You step away from that situation and at home, quietly on your own or with your parent or somebody trusted, you talk about the decision. You do not make a decision. In, under a peer pressure situation so that really that really did disturb me but I think it's because we've got this race to get to a finish line and it's like do the ends justify the means well let's see when we get to the end whether the ends justify the means and I think there's a real risk of backfiring mm. yeah I mean it's 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 slightly strange especially since we appear to be at the finish line I mean just um, I saw from the office of national statistics this morning it's now estimated that over 80% of people in the UK, 86% of adults in England, for example, have, have got antibodies from vaccination or previous infection. 
Um, and that feels like we're at the we're we're kind of at the finish line. So I don't know um, what they kind of the finish line keeps moving though, and that's that's the problem. And um, I, I do talk about this in my book about finish lines moving and the Overton window moving. Um, where will the finish line end up? What will it look like? Who knows? I'm no oracle, but um, we have heard Michael Gove and Boris Johnson recently talk about what could happen next. In fact, I think that Boris Johnson used the term new horror. We don't know what new horror might await. You know, we, we want to unlock, but we don't know what new horror there might be. And horror is a very emotive choice of word. He didn't say um, a variant of concern. He used the word horror. That could just be his bombastic style. Um, but also there was something in the news yesterday about how our phones will start giving siren warnings if there are dangers or disasters. It could be flooding, it could be, I don't know, war. I, I don't really know what it would be for. My instant thought was if my phone makes one siren noise, I'm getting rid of it because <laughs> I don't want my, my phone to make a siren noise. You know, also if a nuclear bomb's going to drop, it's too late by that point. Don't tell me about it. <laughs> Um, my, 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 my trust, my trust in government messaging is not the highest it's ever been. So I actually don't want the government to be able to communicate against my will through my phone with me about, about disasters. But I think you can see a kind of a, a trend, a direction of travel there. And we've also heard from the, from somebody in the NHS that we might need to lock down again in the winter if the NHS is overwhelmed. So it doesn't look like we have a really clear definitive finish mm. line. Yeah, that is like, that's that's the worst part about it, um, I think, in, is that the, 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 the finish line keeps kind of moving. Now, why do you think that the fear of COVID... Mm. That's stressful. That's stressful for people, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so, so why do you think the fear of, 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 of COVID has trumped fear of everything else? Like... The, the risk management here has been awful and the, the ability to understand statistically what risk people are at has been even worse. Why do you think we, we find it so difficult to get a grasp on? Because like, even if you're on, even if you're over 75 at the peak, they were saying, you know, there's like an 85% survival rate. Like when you get down below 50 to healthy kids, that that's less. And now we've got the vaccine that's even less. And yet, the fear doesn't seem to have decreased as the risk has decreased. Um, so it's uh, it's difficult. Well, the, the infection fatality rates, the infection fatality rates weren't necessarily. Um, I, I think I think that, um, you know, there were warnings from people like Dr. Johnny and Ardis that infection fatality rates were being overestimated right at the beginning from Diamond Princess. But I'm just just looking at my book here, I've got some infection fatality rates at the end. So if you look at Imperial College London from their COVID-19 infection fatality ratio estimates from seroprevalence, yeah, the infection fatality rate for 50 to 54 year olds is 0.38% and for 45 to 45, 45 to 49 year olds it's 0.24%. I'm in the 45 to 45, 49 year old age bracket. That's an average as well. I expect somebody like me who's got the resting heart rate and VO2 max of an athletic 25-year-old and eats really well and doesn't smoke would have a lower one than that. Um, when it gets really serious is, yeah, it's above above 80. Um, but it's, it's, it's graduated by age. It's very age stratified. 
and um, the World Health Organization published infection fatality rate of COVID-19 inferred from seroprevalence data by John Ionardis and he put the median IFR at 0.05% for under 70 year olds. That's based across 40 locations. So yeah, it's not very risky, but I like to ask people occasionally what they think the risk would be for them, because I think it's really interesting. Um, I asked a waiter at dinner the other night because he was talking about concern about opening up and I said, how old are you? And he told me 64. And I said, so if you caught COVID, what do you think your risk of dying would be at 64? And he said, oh, I don't know, 20%. And so he thinks he'd have a 20% chance of dying if he got COVID, but it's 1.47%. So he's, no, sorry, 0.94%. So he was overestimating by 20 times. And I remember asking the neighbour last year, I said, it was in the summer, I said, how many people do you think have died from COVID? Um, in the country you know what percentage and she said oh about 10 percent so you know we'd have noticed over six million bodies you you wouldn't not notice that you would have noticed there'd be bodies everywhere so the thing is our, our fear is stone age our understanding of maths is not in the same place and people are notoriously bad at um, estimating risk and numbers but that has um coincided with this public health messaging which has really really um sought to alarm people to make them follow the rules you know we've had black and white grainy images of people on gurneys with their head missing from the picture not because their head had been chopped off but it, it does it does then create the feeling of god their head's not even on the picture it's really scary yellow and black chevrons around public health messaging and ads which are like disaster cordons you know everything the whole time said disaster 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 and an, a pandemic is disastrous but the risk is not equally great for people so people of all ages have thought that, that they're at a risk that they're not at that's stunning that they said that they felt they were like a 20 percent chance of dying do people not look this up is that not the... No, I don't think so. I think that they, they trust they trust their normal news sources and they, they trust the government ads and fears are also naturally frightening times. Epidemics are normally naturally frightening times. This is stunning to me. I didn't... I, like, I mean, maybe those were just anecdotal and, and like one-off cases, but... I, wow. No, 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 they're not, they're not. Let me give you another figure then. Um, but like, do the BBC not like... Okay, I haven't watched a lot of... TV. So here we go. A, sur a survey in July last year showed that the British public thought six to seven percent of the population had died from coronavirus, which was at the time a hundred times the actual death rate based on official figures. That would have been four and a half million bodies. So people have really overestimated the spread and the deadliness and the deaths. Wow, that's that's amazing. I mean that kind of that's that's a stunning indictment of our of our media environment that like people don't even have a vague assessment like even ball like a rough in the same ballpark figure of of like the risk to themselves. Maybe that's well. If you where think about the presentation of, sorry, no, we must have some tight slight time delay. Sorry. Yeah, no, sorry. I was just going to say maybe that's why we're. Um, like that that explains so much better why people are reacting the way they are if to be honest that makes me feel better 
Well, the, the thing is that if you think about the presentation of figures and the, the death dashboard, as I, I've called it over the last year, it shows deaths, but not recoveries. Um, it shows hospital admissions, but not discharges. So the data is presented in a way where, you know, you could look at it and always feel like this is a disease no one ever gets better and recovers from. Um, and just introducing that kind of context probably would have been reassuring for people. In my book, I also interviewed people who have been quite undone by fear in the last year, developed agoraphobia, self-harm, OCDs, attempted suicides, and I heard from several of them how much they really wanted that context and they were looking for it in the news, but didn't find it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, anyone that was mentioning the fact that it was a less than 1% death rate, far less than 1% death rate in, in most cases, was getting told they were uh, a COVID denier or a crazy conspiracy theorist or, or X, Y, Z of the kind of things that have been pumped out against people. Like, What's your sense of of what that, that sort of like right think, wrong think does to, to our, our ability to discuss things? Because like COVID will not be the final thing on which this divide pops up. I think it'll get worse probably in terms of like what people are allowed to say or, or what's considered like acceptable. Mm. I think censorship is one of the concerning aspects of all of this. So um, that's happened in, in various ways. First of all, and perhaps most serious and something that a lot of people aren't aware of is the Ofcom guidance. Um, which basically inhibited broadcasters from having um, open discussions about scientific developments or what was happening politically. Um, so that has meant that the, the conversation on broadcasters has been very much in favour of supporting the government's public health narrative. And you can see why that might seem sensible, but also the situation is constantly evolving. Um, and, you know, we've seen, for instance, something like um, now the idea that the virus escaped from a lab is quite common currency, but that was considered a conspiracy theory earlier last year. So things change and inhibiting discussion on the major broadcasters isn't isn't ideal. A lot of people aren't aware of that. I'm trying to find out the quote from the guidance. Yeah, so I asked, asked broadcasters. Yeah, it asks broadcasters to be alert to health claims related to the virus, which may be harmful, medical advice, which may be harmful, accuracy and material misleadingness in programmes in relation to the virus or public policy regarding it. So that really inhibits the questioning of public policy. And this is the kind of thing that we might have criticised other countries before. The state broadcaster being told they can't go against the state orthodoxy. I think that's a healthy environment for the media. Another way in which there's been um, a suppression of debate is um, a, real, a real ridiculing of academics who are seen as outliers. Um, you know, any new scientific discovery has, of, by definition, come from an outlier because it's come from outside of the, um, the mainstream thinking. So that's, that's dangerous in itself. But again, um, there hasn't been one fixed view. There have been multiple views and shutting them down, I'm sure, can't be healthy. There was even a list of scientists and politicians, uh, scientists and journalists who were deemed to be wrong, produced by an MP. And, um, you know, I never thought I'd live to see the day where we have a list of people who've got it wrong, published by an MP. The use of the term COVIDia, well, that's designed to kind of 
shut down a certain sort of behaviour and dehumanise people. Actually, there was a review of the state of fear in the Times and I was called the Cordon a covid and I thought, oh, that's classic. I've talked about what an unhelpful term it is and how it's used to create a climate of fear and suppress debate and it others and dehumanises and I've just been called one. Um, so I think, I just think even talking about the fact that there has been a suppression of debate feels really threatening for people. I was not, yeah, I'm, I'm stunned that Ofcom had done that, actually. But, like, where's the accountability here? Like, the BBC told everyone for a whole year that, that, that it wasn't a lab leak, that, you know, they had their specialist disinformation officer, who I have begged many times to come on this show, but she won't. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe that's just because she doesn't want to do interviews. But she, she goes on about, she went on for a whole year about how these were dangerous conspiracy theories. We shouldn't listen to them, even though there were some very credible people saying it. And then it turns out that they were wrong and they had spayed, the BBC had spread misinformation. It's like, then, okay, so why should we trust you on the next thing? Like, well, it, it's destroyed my, 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 my faith in the mainstream press because they can label anyone as a nutcase if they want or conspiracy theory or if they just don't like their idea. It's like, oh, they're the wrong kind of, they've got the wrong kind of opinion. And then regardless of what the facts then turn out to be, there's no accountability held there. Like, that's what actually scares me more than anything. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. I mean, having gone to report on a couple of the anti-lockdown protests in London, I was um, bemused, let's say, by some of the coverage. So there was one where the BBC reported there were a few thousand people there. Now, I would be terrible at estimating a crowd, although if the Met Police wanted to, they'd be able to do so much more accurately. They haven't released the figure. But I mean, there can't have been less than 50,000 people there. There just can't have been from how long it took those people to walk all the way through Oxford Street. It wasn't a few thousand people. So just something like that where I saw with my own eyes what was happening. And I saw, you know, in general, it was an extremely peaceful and good natured protest characterised as violent anti-lockdown and just a few thousand people there. Just that made me question coverage. Um, I think that the the caution about what's report and whatnot has only gone in one direction as well. That's the other thing. So, yeah, it is, it is difficult when you feel that your trusted news sources aren't as reliable as you thought. Because mm. I want them, I want to have, like, I loved, the, I used to love the fact that, the okay, the BBC in, in days gone by, at least, or in, in, earlier in my life, were, were considered to be, like, a bit pro-establishment, maybe a little bit, like, liberally, sort of, Westminster, like, what happens when you live in a major city? Just that, that sort of, like city because we've got an increasingly city rural divide in, in britain but like you could at least rely on the fact that they were attempting to create the best programming and journalism like you knew that okay maybe there were some things getting suppressed or you know they had a slant on things but generally i felt i could rely on what was reported there and i don't anymore that, that's that's the the, the 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 yeah the difficult part for me but um, anyway, Laura, we're we're coming to we're coming to the end of of um, the time. I'm aware you need to go. So, if you would like to um, tell people where they can find your book, find yourself, and maybe give us um, some either hopeful or dystopian prediction as to where you think things might go in the rest of the year. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Okay, well, the book is called A State of Fear, How the UK Government Weaponised Fear During the COVID-19 Pandemic. It is available from all good bookshops. Um, if you're local, independent or Waterstones, wherever doesn't have it in, you can order it. But otherwise, it's online in all the normal places. Um, 
I'm on Twitter at Bear Reality and my website is lauradodsworth.com. I don't know what I I don't know if I want to offer any predictions. I am worried about how deeply embedded behavioural psychology is in government. Researching this book is not the most fun or relaxing thing I've ever done. And in a way, for me, it was quite reactionary. I never knew that I would write a book that was political and polemical in nature, but I just had to respond to what was happening last year. I think we need a public consultation on the use of behavioural psychology. I think we need to think about what, what we want society to look like. Do we want personal accountability? Do we want trust between government and people, which involves transparent information? Or do we want the tiny, detail lives of our of our, uh, the tiny details of our lives managed from having dots on the ground for where to stand to laws governing how many people you may be within a room? Or do, do we want to be personally responsible for our own risk and personally accountable and treated like grown-ups? More importantly, how do we envisage society? Do we want scary ads which are designed to make people follow the rules. Um, recovery should be children playing in playgrounds and it should be the birds singing and it should be people getting on with lives. It shouldn't be counting deaths every day. That is not normal. We do not do it for other diseases. It is not posters in parks saying COVID is in this park. I have seen that. It is not five-year-olds having panic attacks about meeting their friends because there has been 24-7 fear-mongering for coming up for a year and a half. So we need to think about what we want society to be like. If you if you want that kind of society, you have to push towards having it. So that would be um, writing to your MP, or reading the book, read my book. It's like an anti-nudge guide. I think that once you're aware of certain techniques, which you will perceive through the media, through advertising and through government messaging, once you're aware of them, you can't not be, you can't not be aware of them. So it helps you become more resilient to certain behavioral psychology techniques that are being used upon you. And finally, we just need to have the, um, the power to believe in recovery. Um, we, you know, we need to believe in recovery. We need to have the, the power to believe we can create change, which we, which we all can. A lot of power is taken away by this application of behavioral psychology because it happens under the surface. And I think we need to get that back. And, you know, you talked about being sad about not trusting the BBC um, or, or the government. And what I would like, it's by no means a prediction, but what I'd like is we go back into a trusting, transparent relationship with government and media. Mm. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to interview plenty of people who are envisioning how we get there. So maybe we'll come up with something positive. <laughs> um, but yeah, I am. I'm going to be I'm going to be um, talking to some other people about ideas for recovery. Um, you know, I, I have as as limited and unlimited power as anyone else, but I'm going to get people together to to start thinking about recovery and how we move forwards and climb down from fear. I think it's really important. I mean, uh, the one person I would recommend you, you chat to about um, not so much the recovery from fear, but more the recovery of society and the renewal of trust in institutions is Mark E. Thomas, the author of 99%. Um, I just had him on, I just did an interview with him like two days ago. It'll be actually after this one. So um, subscribe everyone to, to check that out. But um, he his what I was I have never been more inspired after a forty five minute conversation than I was with him. Um, it was it was beautiful because he laid out how we renew trust in institutions and government in a really simple way 
So yeah, um, I'd, I'd have, highly recommend him. But yes, uh, Laura, if you would like hang around for two seconds, so we can just make sure everything's worked all right. And um, yeah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, thanks for having me. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. Don't forget our sponsor, ExpressVPN, and my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, can both be found in the links in the description below. And also, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow. Until next time, thanks for listening.